0: Good morning church. Someone's awake, I like that. Uh, Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're visiting Christ Church this morning, my name's Mark and I'm one of the ministers here at our church and we're glad that you're with us. We're starting a new series this morning in 1 Peter and I want to kind of explain so you understand that there's a rhythm to what we're doing here as a church and you'll understand kind of the construct of what we're speaking about this entire year. We started in January looking at the book of Colossians Uh, It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church to encourage them that under the pressure to add all of these activities to your spiritual life, Paul wanted to encourage them, Jesus is enough. If we simply rely on Jesus, and that means living out our faith on behalf of him, if we do that, that he's enough. He meets all of our needs. We don't need to add anything to our pursuit of Jesus, uh, that he's just enough. And we study that intentionally We went into February and April and we looked at the revelation of John, the last book in your New Testament. And instead of studying all the symbols, we actually looked at what were the commands that Jesus gave us about preparing ourselves for his return. If he's enough and we know that he was raised from the dead and is returning, then how do we live in light of that reality? And then when we got into April and May, we began to look at the characteristics of God. What should we know that God has revealed to us That allows us to live well and to live intentionally. And so there's been a a rhythm to what we're doing here. And we're beginning 1 Peter because it's a letter that the disciple Peter, the disciple of Jesus, wrote to early Christians who were undergoing rough lives. And the reason their lives were rough was because of their faith in Christ. So he wrote that letter. So if you can see what we're doing is because Jesus is enough, because he's commanded us to live in the victory that he's going to bring, and we can trust the God who made the promise of that victory, then a letter like Peter's to each of us every day is, how do we live well when life doesn't go well? This is what this short little letter is truly about. Peter writes this letter, and he gives a bunch of imperative verbs. If you remember our Revelation study, you'll remember that imperative verbs are bossy words. They tell you to do something. And when we get into the After this first chapter, we get into this section where Peter begins to tell us what we need to do to live well when the world doesn't treat us well. And so it's a very uh, demonstrative book. It explains things well. It gives us a chance to live out this faith, and it does it with encouragement. Peter wanted the early uh, Christians to understand that life is hard, yet God, God will be faithful and fulfill every promise he ever made. Let's read the first two verses and well, uh, this is Peter's introduction, it's very, very brief. He, said, he identifies himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims, that's a key word, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Just picture the country of Turkey. That's where these churches were residing that he wrote the letter to. And he refers to them uniquely here. He, he says, to the pilgrims who have been dispersed because of their faith. The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Grace and peace is his prayer for them. It's the intent of the letter. I want to show you the goodness of God, and I want to show you how you can live at peace. But let's remember who's writing the letter. Peter. The famed Simon Peter from the... Matthew Mark Luke and John accounts the guy who cut off the ear of this man arresting Jesus the servant he cut off Malchus's ear now I want you to to remember we think well that was he shouldn't have done that well let me tell you why he shouldn't have done that because surrounding Malchus was a bunch of Roman centurions soldiers who had been trained to kill well and this would be the equivalent, if you will, of two men being confronted by 30 police officers and one of those two men punch a police officer in the face. What might you expect to happen? It won't end well for the puncher, will it? So when Jesus picks up Malchus's ear and glues it back on his head, he's looking at Peter going, dumb move. Peter's word is peace. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you don't see very much peace with Peter. You see a man who struggled, a man who was ambitious, a man who was impetuous. We know his great failure when he says, Jesus, if, if no one else is ever loyal to you, I will be loyal until my death. And Jesus said, no, Peter, you won't. Peter said, I will. And then he wasn't. It was the same man on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2 who preaches a sermon when the Holy Spirit fills him. He preaches a sermon demonstrating who this re- resurrected Jesus is and it changes 3,000 men's lives and their families. Peter knows what he's writing about. Peter's life has been hard. He has suffered. People have been moved from their homes and away from their families. They've lost their fortunes and their property, and they've been dispersed all over Turkey because of their faith in Jesus. And Peter writes them a letter. Here's what he wants us to know. God is our king, and there is no other. We are strangers, pilgrims, and aliens in this current world we live in. And our citizenship is in heaven, yet the kingdom of heaven is now. I read this quote recently, and I wish I knew who it came from, but it wasn't cited, and so I have to just be intellectually honest and say it's not mine. The world is a bridge. The wise man will pass over it, but he will not build his house upon it. That, to me, is the cliff note version of this letter to early Christians struggling. Remember, we are on a journey and we have not reached our destination. Church, is that good news? Because I don't think you have to be more than 14 years old to be disappointed by the life we get to live. Because we'll always lament how it could have been better or we could have done more or we wish we hadn't done this. And yet, Peter tells us the world's a bridge and the wise man keeps walking And he doesn't stop and make this home. Aliens, pilgrims, strangers are the words he wants us to remember. And he talks to us about hope. Now, I need to define hope biblically. For most of us, when we hope for something and we use that word, what we're actually using is the word for wishful thinking. Okay, I hope before I die, the Cubs win a World Series. And I know that's wishful thinking. I mean, anybody can have a bad century, right? But wishful thinking, I hope they do. Biblical hope is confident expectation. And there's a difference between hoping it happens, wishful thinking, and expecting it to happen and living that way. When we talk about hope today, he's going to talk about past, present, and future hope. And he's going to tell us it's about a confident expectation built on one historical reality that changed the world. Let's look at our future hope. He does it very, very simply. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The key word here is mercy. Everything he talks about is a reflection of the mercy God has shown us. If God chose to be all about his justice, every one of us would be dead for our sin right now. If God were just just, He would flick me off his globe and say, you don't do anything I ask you to do, get away. But because he's merciful, he chooses to love me in his mercy and grace so that I can understand his justice and live for it. God is good and he's merciful. And Peter tells us that it is this mercy that brings us living hope. That even on our worst day, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will return us back to a garden experience. The garden of Eden in Genesis and the great garden of the new heavens in Revelation. That this living hope will get us through all of this. And it's all based on the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we've called this series Building on Hope. Because we are going to have to deconstruct our houses on the bridge. And construct a Brand new dwelling in the presence of God. For many of us, we've started a foundation here on Earth. We've started to build fortune and relationships, and so we think we're doing okay building here. But I want to remind you: this life is a bridge. Don't build on it; it's coming down. And when it comes down, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, "And great will be its destruction." So we're to build on hope, and what he tells us to do in our marriages and with our children and at work, and all the things that he talks to us about in these commands in this letter are all about building on hope. You see, we can build significant things if we build it on a foundation that cannot be destroyed. And so he, he calls us to mercy, and he says his mercy comes to the resurrection. And then in verse 4, he talks about an inheritance. And I know this is kind of a morbid thought, but the first hour passed this quiz quite well. Let's see how we do. To receive your inheritance, the person leaving you the inheritance has to what? Die. That's why we have an inheritance. Because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I have been left all of his inheritance, even though he still lives. And church, is that good news? That, that is a joyous thing. That's why we can celebrate the cross instead of just grieve it. And he says there's an inheritance and he gives us descriptions of it that are powerful, incorruptible. Nothing from the outside can destroy what God has set aside for us. It's undefiled. It won't decay or spoil. It's unfading. It won't lose its value. It is going to be as good for us then as it was the moment he gave it to us. And then he says, it's reserved in heaven for us. He's holding it for us until the day that we pass through death's door. But we can live in the hope of that now. The reason he says is, hey, wait till a better day. No, he says, today's a better day because this inheritance is in your account and you will receive it in full. To me, that's good news. You see, when we look at verse 5, he tells us how this can be. Because he says, he shields us by his power. The reason we receive this inheritance is because God is holding on to it to protect. I remember St. Joe County Fair, South Bend, Indiana. My dad gave me a $20 bill. And it was was my allowance and he gave it to me and we were going into the carnival and I was going to go ride the rides and buy an elephant ear and all the things God wants me to do. And I went with my $20 bill. And I remember my father distinctly saying to me, Mark, how about you give me the $20 and I'll give it to you when you need it. And no, I'm a big boy. I can handle my money. I put it in my pocket. And of course, being who I was, I went and got food immediately and I broke the $20 bill. And I remember this. I don't know why I remember the details of this, but I distinctly do because it pays off later. They gave me all back a pile of like, ones, like $1 bills and a five. So I had this big wad of cash in my pocket. And I went in one of those bounce houses and I reached in my pocket when I came out of the bounce house and all I had was the change. I had the quarters and dimes, I had none of the dollars and five dollar bills. And all my friends were running to the rides that cost everything, and I couldn't go back and tell my dad I did exactly what he told me I was gonna do. And so I watched all my friends have fun that day. I wish my father would have kept my twenty-dollar bill for me, because I would have enjoyed every penny of that, trust me. But I took it from him, and I lost it, and I lived with the loss of that. I got great news for you, church. You can't, you can't ruin the inheritance God has prepared for you because he's holding it by his power, and he will give it to us when he's ready, not when we are. And that gave Peter hope. So the future hope was God's got it. The present hope is found in verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Peter says, I know you're going through some trials right now, and I know it's been hard. That is the understatement of all understatements that Peter will ever make. He says, life is being tough on you right now. When Peter's audience would read this scroll, they didn't know when someone knocked on the door whether they were going to be dragged out in the street and executed, falsely imprisoned, or lose their property, their possessions, and their family. They lived under an intense persecution by Rome because this thing called Christianity was multiplying exponentially daily. And they realized that there was going to be a race for supremacy. And Rome came down hard on the early Christians. They were being burned at the stake, fed to lions, tortured, imprisoned, and scholars suggest that within a four to five year period of writing this letter, Peter was probably crucified for his faith. The clock was ticking, And Peter says, I know you're having some tough days. He's making a greater point because it's temporary. Notice that he says that for a little while you may have to suffer grief. And in verse six, he tells us that there's a reason God's allowing us to go through this. I remember back 100 years ago when I was somewhat of an athlete, I remember playing on ball teams. And I remember some coaches allowed us to lose games so that we could learn how to win other games. In other words, they left us in tough situations, have an 0-2 count, being at the plate against a really good pitcher, and looking down to the third base coach and have him go, that's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. And letting me battle to the best of my ability. And then between innings, walking up and saying, what did you learn from that? And teaching me that sometimes you win in a loss. Do you understand that the suffering that God lets us go through, and every one of us will suffer, whether we vote on it or not, because he doesn't ask us to vote on anything, he's God. That sometimes he lets us lose some games so we can win others. Church, are, are you comfortable with that? Well, it doesn't matter if you are, because that's the truth. But can you become comfortable with it? That's what faith does. Faith allows us to trust a coach who will let us lose even when losing hurts. You see, because we imagine that if we're gonna be in God's family that we shouldn't be weary or worried, that everything should be smooth and comfortable and he doesn't promise any of that. In all of scripture, there's no promise of that. I I become... Absolutely dumbfounded when I hear preachers today talking about that God wants you wealthy and healthy and wise and have joy, and if you don't have those things, it's because you don't have enough faith. That sickens my heart because if that is true, God owes Jesus an apology. He was homeless, he had no true, real, loyal friends. He, he struggled every day to live by faith so that he could honor his father. I don't think God wants me to be successful, happy, or comfortable. He wants me to be real and holy and his. And sometimes the only way you can learn how to win is to lose. And suffering feels like a loss, but because of the power of the resurrection, it's a win. He says it's like fire that tests gold. It burns out the impurities and it changes the complexion and the composite of gold, but it makes it a better, stronger gold. And I also appreciate Peter because Peter doesn't say to suck it up and don't act like it doesn't hurt. He says, I know you're grieving and he doesn't belittle people for hurting. In fact, I've thought of this. I grew up in, I've told you this a thousand times, but I grew up in a house of mostly men, five guys and my poor mom. And so any show of emotion was really had to be calibrated or it could be used against you in a court of brothers. And I've just come to this reality, whether I like it or not, I only cry when it matters. And if I cry, it's because it matters and I shouldn't be ashamed of that. And Peter says, when you suffer, you'll grieve because it's the loss of something valuable. It's painful. It it doesn't always... Feel good. But with the resurrection, it's momentary. Let me say it this way. Without the resurrection being real, suffering is inhumane and horrible. But if the resurrection of Jesus is real, then suffering is temporary and sustainable. I can make it. Because the power of the resurrection means even if it kills me, I'm gonna live again. In verse seven, he says, and the the reason God allows us to suffer is it strengthens our faith. In verse 8, he says, it strengthens our faith because we believe in Jesus Christ who overcame death, even though it feels like we're currently dying in our grief. And in verse 9, he says, and the value of our faith in Jesus Christ is it produces salvation. But let's clarify, salvation is not just being saved from your sins so you can go on and get a mulligan. Salvation means you're saved from yourself. You're saved from what the world's doing to you. You're saved from the need to build on the bridge that's gonna be destroyed one day. In fact, verse nine says, for you are receiving the goal of your faith. The reason we pursue Jesus is not to make sure we're okay. The reason we follow Jesus is because he's okay and we can trust him. And he, he is what's right for us and best for us. So there's a reality about this inheritance that's coming to us because we don't have wishful thinking but we have confident expectation and then there's the present reality we live in. Even when the world isn't treating us well, God is. Even if our suffering would kill us, God will raise us and then he takes us to the past and how all of this is a part of a grand narrative that God has been building that took took Peter forever to understand. The past brings us hope. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. That that verses 10 through 12 is honestly a sermon within itself, but let me walk you through just the brief points. He said that there were prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There, There were prophets in the Old Testament whose writings we now read and study to understand what God has been doing. Who knew when God told them, a prophet is a proclaimer, That when God told them to go proclaim this truth to the world, they knew that what they were talking about, they would never experience. But they knew it was going to happen. That's called faith. It wasn't just wishful thinking. It was a confident expectation. That they were proclaiming a truth to our generation that would be benefited directly by this generation. that They were proclaiming this truth, and yet it would not happen in their time. And what they were told by God to say is, and this is very important in verse 11 that you notice this, that there would be the sufferings of Christ followed by the glories of Christ. That progression is undeniably biblical and necessary for us to understand. The template of life is this. You will suffer because this world is broken by sin, but there is glory for those who suffer through faith. And those who suffer without faith will only receive more suffering. And the words that they used about this Messiah, this Jesus who would come, is that there would be sufferings, plural, not singular. So for those who are buying into this preaching, that God just wants you to have a great life, I don't, how do you preach 1 Peter? How do you read the book of Hebrews? How do you read the life of Jesus and think that God is telling you you're going to live on easy street? No, he says, life's a competitive thing. It's going to take hard work. Lazy people don't do well. You're going to suffer and you're going to hurt, but you can endure this because I will never leave you, Jesus said, and I will never forsake you. I will be with you through every step of it. And then there are glories. Doesn't Philippians chapter 2 tell us that for all the suffering he endured, it was to receive the glories of hearing his father's well done, to have done what he was asked to do? You see, we talked about it last week. It's a little bit hokey, but that's eh, what I got. Remember, the rainbow only comes after the storm. It doesn't come ahead of it. And the glories of God can only be found on the other side of suffering. That's why I've always believed faith is found on the other side of obedience. The only way you know your faith is real is when you test it by doing the right thing, the right way for the right reason at the right time. And then you understand what it means to trust the Lord completely. So will you and I pursue Jesus when it feels like he's walking away? When he's not answering our prayers, when he's not told us yes, will we still pursue him? Because Jesus says, follow me. He never says, lead me. He, he never says, I'm gonna tell you where I'm taking you. He just says, follow me, and I will make you useful. You see, the Holy Spirit revealed to these prophets that there would be one who would come and show us through suffering what it is to live, not through prosperity. And because of his suffering, you and I have the ability to suffer well when the world doesn't treat us well. And then I get a kick out of this, and this is just for me. I said it last hour, and they stared at me like a car accident, but I'm used to it. It says the angels are looking into this. Do you know that the angels can't tell anybody about Jesus because everybody they hang out with already knows? Have you ever had someone come over, hey, did you hear about the penguin and the nun? And you're like, yeah, and they tell you the joke anyway? Isn't that annoying? You're like, I told you I knew the joke, and you beat them to the punchline, but they still feel the need to tell it. Bad humans, bad humans. The angels are in heaven, going, "Hey, did you hear what Jesus did?" And the other angel goes, "Yeah." They're like, "Ugh," and they look down and they watch us sharing salvation. The gospel message. The only time an angel, to my awareness, the only time an angel got to proclaim the gospel message was that one angel sent by God to declare to the shepherds on the hill that night that Jesus was here. And if you remember, he got sabotaged because when he started to tell the story, all the legions of the angels jumped in and told the joke. That angel's like, ah, waited forever. It says that the angels would love to tell the story of what God's been doing from day one to someone who doesn't know the story. What a privilege we have, church. Because through the sufferings of Jesus, listen to Psalm 16. Listen to the promise. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Church, that's the rainbow after the storm. The psalmist says, I know this. My life has been hard. This is a messianic psalm, by the way. This is a psalm attributed as a prophetic vision of what Jesus would endure. And yet Jesus knew that even if he had to suffer unto death, that God would not allow him to decay one moment in the grave. But he would walk out of the grave as God had promised him he would. I ask you today, church, do you believe that promise is yours? Do you believe that through the hope of the resurrection, it's not wishful thinking, but it's a confident expectation that one day God will say, Lazarus, come forth, and it'll sound like Mark, and I'm gonna walk out. I'm betting my life on it. Not wishful thinking, but if Jesus could do it, and he says because of him, I can do it, I expect to do it. You see, I can tell you Peter's story in one simple phrase. You've heard it before, but it's true. Church, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Confident expectation is not thinking things are going to work out okay. It's living as if they will. It's changing the way we live and the choices we make. The words we say and the actions we do. Based on the resurrection of Jesus, I don't need to settle for the things of this world that are only a bridge to the next life. I'm going to build my life on the promise of Jesus Christ and nothing else. That's why Peter would call him the cornerstone, the one that was rejected as insufficient. God is building his kingdom on that one corner piece, set in the ground to be the security for every other piece of construction, building on hope, the cornerstone. Peter, when arrested and told not to preach about Jesus, said these words in Acts 4. Nor is there any salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter said, I'm going to live as if Jesus is everything he said he was, and I expect that to work out beautifully. So when you suffer and when you struggle and when life is hard and when the world doesn't treat you well, what do you do? Do you think Jesus has walked away from you and you start to build a new place? Or do you continue to build the home he called you to build on him and to live your life that way? Living hope. It's what it is. It's not thought about. It's demonstrated. So why do we need living hope? Because we're going to suffer in this world and without it, it just leaves us miserable, bitter, lifeless. But in Jesus... Suffering strips strips away from us the things we think we need to demonstrate to us what we truly need. And suffering strengthens us. It's a loss that will produce a win down the road if we sustain. How does it operate? It allows us to go through our suffering well and to experience that. I want to be careful. Your suffering hurts, my suffering hurts. I cry, and I cry out to God, and I get angry, and I have all the emotions of feeling poorly and wondering if this is going to work out. I get scared, I get angry, I wonder, I cry out to God. And let me tell you, everything that I just explained to you, it was demonstrated by Jesus, so I know it's okay. Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, where have you gone? Quoting the Psalms. He he begged in the garden, Can we do this another way? This hurts. And in all of those moments, was he any less faithful? No, because when the suffering hit, his living hope propelled him through the suffering to believe confidently, expectantly. And how do we get it? Well, verse 3, Peter makes it crystal clear. We're born again into living hope. Which means I have to die to my control of my life and live to his through the resurrection and through the death. You see, for many of us, I sit here today and you think, you know what, I need to have living hope. And you've tried. You've walked out of here on how many occasions going, you know what, I'm going to be different today. And then you hit the parking lot. And someone cuts you off. Or you have to wait an hour and a half to cross 96. And you start wondering, is there a God or you go home and you're excited and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to talk to my spouse about this and I'm going to mention that we need to work better together and pray together and you start to mention it and you get in a fight over lunch and you stop and you go, ah. You have wishful thinking that you can do this. You don't have confident expectation. And Here's why. Because it's hard and we're not good at hard. We're good at surrendering when it's hard. But we're not good at living, hopefully, when it's hard. So I'm going to ask you some awkward questions this morning. I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable, but I really don't know that I'm concerned if you do. I want to ask you this morning, do you want living faith? Do you want to move beyond wishful thinking to confident expectation? And are you saying to yourself, of course I do, but I don't know how to do it? Then you're at the perfect place to be today. Because it comes by being born again, into who Jesus is, not to who you've been. Notice that Peter never mentions social status or lineage or anything when he talks to them. He says, no, you're the elect, you're the chosen, you're the set apart, you're the ones he's called. So today, living hope is a gift from God to all of us through the resurrection of Jesus. And some of us are hurting. Your hearts have been broken. Your dreams have been shattered. You've done your very best Christian responsiveness and you stop and you say, it doesn't work for me. Welcome to Christianity. It's not about us. It's always about him. And living hope is based on his being what I never can be on my own. So I want to ask you, If you desire living hope, you're struggling with frustration, or you want more, you've had it, and it went away, and you just, it's not a feeling, it's a reality, and you're struggling today, and you want living hope, stand up. Right now, just stand up. You want more to this life than just trying to get through it. This confession right here and now will be the greatest act of worship that will happen any place in the world today because when Americans stand up and say, I can't, Satan just lost ground. But it's not about standing in church, it's about saying to God, I want to live and w- I want to get out of the boat, I want to walk on water. I want my life to matter as I journey with Jesus. I want to invite what the angels can't do. I want to invite people with me. Then some of you are sitting and you're not being judged. You're like, oh, this is awkward. Honesty is okay here. But some of you need to stand right now on behalf of another person who we need to be praying for that they have living hope. And if you can stand for someone else, join us. Because I'm standing for me and two brothers. I want more hope and I want them to have some. So this morning, let's ask God to do what we can't because the resurrection of Jesus proves to me God can. Let's pray. Jesus, help. Help our wounded hearts. Help us to not hear those voices that say, here you go again. It didn't work last time. Jesus, give us strength for our fear right now. Our fear that we've just stood up and thought, oh my, what did I do? I don't know what to do next. Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit, as you promise, will lead us. Will give us words to think and say. Will show us in your word. Will encourage us with the companionship of those around us. God, it's hard for us to stand up and say, we're trying and we're not good at this. But I believe that this isn't symbolic. This is real. This is testimony. And we're standing in your presence with our arms outreached to you, asking you to do the work that you promised to do, that by the power of the resurrection and the inheritance kept for us in the heavens by your powerful, mighty hands, that, God, we might walk in a hope that changes... The shortcuts we're taking, it changes the words we're saying, it changes the actions, because God, we want to live as if the reality of the resurrection is real to us right now, not in the future. And generations ago, prophets told us that you would suffer for us and bring glory. And that's what we desire, to suffer well in a world that will make us suffer so that we can share the glory of Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. God, touch these hearts, spoken and unspoken today. Give us your life that we might live well. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.